You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. Tonight's reading comes from the book of John, chapter 10, verses 22 through 42. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, It is... Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, the scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him who the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father." Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, we pray now that you would teach us by your word, that we would understand your word. Even a difficult text such as this, we pray that we would see Christ clearly and that we might worship and love him rightly. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You be seated. Good evening. It's great to see each and every one of you here this evening. Thanks, Tim, for wherever you just went, who leading for us. T- there, there he is. Uh, for leading for us tonight, giving Matt a well-deserved rest from leading us in song this evening. I certainly don't take for granted what just a privilege and joy it is to be with you, each one of you here on Sunday evenings, singing with you, confessing with you, praying with you, coming to the table with you, assembling together with you under God's word. Uh, We took a week off from John 10 last week on Easter, so let me take just a second not only to remind us where we've been, but also to uh, spill the beans a little bit here on where we're going. what's happening, what's happened, and just reorient ourselves in John chapter 10. So let me just read this to you. Up until now in John 10, Jesus has been unfolding a figure of speech in verse 6. He says, this figure of speech Jesus used with them. In that figure of speech, he says that there is a sheepfold and that he is the door of the sheepfold. He said that in verse 7. And he is the good shepherd. 
in verse 11. And he has sheep that are in his Jewish flock. He doesn't say that word, but that's what's assumed there in verses 1 through 3. And that he has sheep that are outside of his Jewish flock. His other sheep that he makes reference to, not of that fold in verse 16. And his mission in this world, given to him by God the Father, is to lay down his life for his sheep. Verse 17. And then to take up his life again. Verse 18, and to call his sheep by name all over the world through the voice of his disciples, as we'll see him say in John 17. And then he says that his sheep know his voice when he calls them and they follow him, verses 16 and 27. And in the end, there will be one flock from all over the world, verse 16. And then we'll see next week in chapter 11, who enjoy eternal life together, verse 28. And there will be one shepherd, verse 16, in complete safety, verses 28 and 29, in pleasure, verse 9. Uh, enjoying the pleasure of the shepherd forevermore in eternity. Like this is just an incredible chapter where we've been and where we're going. So here we go. All right, let's get into this thick and kind of confusing second half of chapter 10. We'll think about this second half under three plot movements where Jesus answers his opposition and then Jesus kind of sidesteps his opposition and then some believe. So first of all, Jesus answers his opposition. Okay, the very first thing that we should observe is that John tells us that this is the time of the Feast of Dedication, which means this is about two months after the last scene that we saw, uh, where Jesus was talking about being the door, being the shepherd. That was a time right after he had healed a blind man, which was at the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. Dedication, the Feast of Dedication, is the latest of all of the Jewish feasts. It's a remembrance of 200 years prior where many Jews, including its leadership, for all intents and purposes, had become Greek. The entire Mediterranean world was becoming Hellenized, was becoming Greek, and these Jewish leaders gave, basically, gave their temple over to the Greek empire, and this Greek king comes in and he uh, sacrifices a pig inside the Holy of Holies. Maybe the lowest moment in Jewish history. It's not in the Bible. It's in between the time of Malachi and the Gospels. Uh, but it was, a, it was a bad time. So a small group of Jewish fighters, you might have heard of them, they're called the Maccabees. They come in, they overthrow the Greeks in Jerusalem, and they reconsecrate or they rededicate the temple to God. And this is the time, the Feast of Dedication, where it was a time of remembrance of the temple being rededicated to God. And at that time, while they only had pure oil to light the menorah for only one night, supposedly, and they believed miraculously, the oil lasted eight crazy nights. Uh, And so this is still remembered as the winter feast of dedication. The festival of lights is still remembered as Hanukkah to this day. Anyway, during this feast, this feast of dedication, Uh, Ezekiel 34, the chapter which we read from two weeks ago about Israel's bad shepherds, it would be read over and over and over again. Uh, It would be a time to remember that, remember people, 200 years ago, we left God. And how did this happen? Our shepherds left God. We were led astray. So let us now, every year, rededicate ourselves, rededicate our leadership to God and to his service. So it's during this context that Jesus is walking around the outskirts of the temple in this like elaborate uh, porch, this elaborate columns everywhere, kind of like over on the side of this room right here, only deeper, uh, where there's like a a roof and then columns everywhere, a way to get out of the wind, a way to get out of the sun. 
And Jesus is walking around the temple uh, when he gets lambasted by this Jewish leadership. And so he brings up this sheep and shepherd thing again. The same thing that we saw in the first half of John 10, but two months later. And they come to him with a question. What, what sparks this whole conversation is the Jewish leadership come to him and they say, how long will you keep us in suspense? Or another literal translation is, how long will you keep annoying us? They say, if you are the Christ, tell us plainly. You sure have seemed to say it, they're implying. You've seemed to imply that you're the Christ. But nearly everything that you've said about yourself could, if we needed to go to court with it, could be taken a different way. So we need some real, hard, explicit evidence to use that you are saying that you are the Christ. Tell us plainly. And Jesus' answer is hilarious in verse 25. He says, I, I, I told you. And you just don't believe, right? I've been saying it for months and months and months. Even very recently when I said I was the good shepherd with the authority to lay down my life and then take it back up again. And all of this was because I was sent to do this by my father. You all thought I was crazy though. You all thought I was demon possessed right in the middle of chapter 10. Which, you know, I get, right? If, if some guy came and said... I am going to give up my life. I'm going to be killed, but not to worry. I will bring myself back from the dead. Like we would all think this guy was rightly crazy. But you didn't just believe what I said, Jesus says. You also don't believe what I did. It's not just that Jesus is walking around making radical claims about himself, saying crazy things about the future even. He was doing radical things to validate, to verify the things that he was saying. And yet they dismissed these too. So he indirectly answers their question about being the Christ. Not plainly, like they wanted him to, but he tells them the reason why they don't believe. He says, uh, I've shown you that I'm the Christ. I'm not going to say it clearly, but here's why you don't already believe me. Here's why you're still asking me this question. Verse 26, here's why. You don't believe because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. So here in chapter 10, Jesus is re-emphasizing a theology that he's been teaching throughout this entire gospel of John. In chapter 3, he told Nicodemus that uh, the saving spirit of God, which brings new birth and new life, moves where it wishes and we don't ever know where it's going. Verse or chapter 5, verse 21, Jesus said, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Or in chapter 6, he says, Don't grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And all of this, of course, is because of the kind of world that we've seen described up until this point in the entirety of John's gospel. This is a world of darkness, a world of blindness, a world that does not know God and does not want to know God. And yet it's for that world that God so loved it that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him from that world would not perish but would have eternal life. We humans, throughout our own individual histories and through the history of our entire race, we live self-oriented lives. We live our lives to the exclusion of God. And this understanding of humanity that we are fundamentally, to our core, 
sinful. This theology of original sin has often been said to be the only empirically verifiable doctrine of the Christian faith, right? Just like if you have a toddler or if you're ever in the nursery, like they're like 24 months and younger and just observe their sin. Uh, Just get on Facebook for like 90 seconds. (laughs) That's all it takes and you just observe the rottenness of humanity, right? And that's not to say uh, that we are, as individuals and as cultures, capable of great things, capable of altruism and kindness. That's not even to say that we are as bad as we are, as, as we are capable of becoming. But humanity is dark. Humanity is blind, or as Paul says, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins, completely unable to produce spiritual life on our own, completely unable to actually even want spiritual life in Christ on our own. We are happy and content to ignore him forever, to keep on keeping on choosing death for ourselves until hell. Happy and content too. But God, but God being rich in mercy abundant in kindness and grace, chooses to save some. Chooses to save many, which is unbelievable, right? So the question, perhaps some of you are already wrestling through this theologically, philosophically. And so you might be thinking, but how? How how can God then send, uh, how can a loving God send people to hell? But the question that we're confronted with in the Bible is not that question, but how? How can a just and righteous God allow us sinful, rebellious, unrepentant people who don't want anything to do with him? How can he allow those kind of people into heaven? That's the question of the Bible. The answer to that, of course, is because he gives them ears to hear. He gives them eyes to see, not based on any intrinsic merit on their own, not based on any natural ability to hear, not based on any like higher level of logic or reasoning skills, right? If, if, you, if you can reason better, then you'll finally accept this truth about Jesus or something. No, that's, that's not the way it works. Then we would just have, we Christians would just have our logic and reasoning skills to boast in over other people. No, it's because God has given ears to hear, has given eyes to see, Only God's fatherly love and grace and kindness and mercy opens eyes to see Christ, opens ears to hear that the only way of life is through Christ. And not just through Christ, but through a seemingly crazy, backward way of his death. That doesn't make any sense apart from open eyes and open ears. And he awakens and gives life through faith in the word of Christ. And those who don't respond to this message are just clearly not his sheep. They're the sheep that remain in the corral. They are sheep, but when they hear the voice of the shepherd, they don't, they don't perk up. They don't hear and recognize his voice and want to follow him. And that doesn't give these sheep any excuse. They're not off the hook because they don't hear and they don't follow him. No, remember what we said a few weeks ago based on what Paul says in Ephesians 4. We, we don't have sinful hearts because we're ignorant of God. We're ignorant of God because we have sinful hearts. We don't want to know him. Apart from the saving work of God, we're totally happy to keep ignoring him, to keep hating him. And guys, I don't want to pretend that we're not like in the very, very deep end of the pool here, in the deep theological waters. This is heavy 
uh, weighty, deep stuff. We'll hopefully include a couple of links, perhaps a couple of book recommendations in the weekly email this week. Hopefully we can process through this kind of stuff together in our gospel communities this week, or we'd be happy to meet and talk with you about this if you have pushback or questions about these kinds of things. But this is not just deep theology just for having deep theology, for deep theology's sake or something, right? Jesus has a point here. He has throughout this entire book, and he certainly has here. And it ought to come as one of the strongest comforts in the entire universe to the Christian's soul. And that's verse 27. That my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. 28. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. John MacArthur has said, if I could lose my salvation, I would. For those whom the shepherd calls, he saves, but he will not let them go. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. We're going to sing this in a little bit. And I hope after having thunk, thunk, having thunk, right? Think, thank, having thought, having thought. There it is. Past participle, everyone. (laughs) Having thought through these things that perhaps singing this song together this evening will be more moving to our souls than ever before, that he will hold me fast. For my Savior loves me so, he will hold me fast. Now, what is this theology behind this song saying? The, the song that we'll sing together, and we saw, the song that we've sung many times together, what is the theology behind that? That as long as I've made a so-called decision for Christ— As long as I've prayed once that God would forgive me, but then week after week and month after month, perhaps year after year, lived in such a way that I still don't want to follow him, that I still don't really care about him, that I still am content to but mostly ignore him for most of my life. But that because I had this past moment of faith at some point in my life and asked Jesus to forgive me of my sins, he will hold me fast. Is that what this is saying? No, a life without present faith shows that I'm still blind, shows that I still don't have a, a, a right understanding of the reality of his death for me and what that means for the death of my sin and a right understanding of the reality of his life for me in following him and in obedience and joy. But what Jesus and this song are saying is what we saw from the first half of the chapter, that it is not the sheep's love of the shepherd that makes the sheep part of the flock. It's the love of the shepherd for the sheep that makes them part of his flock. It's not my unwavering commitment that makes, me, that makes Jesus hold me fast to him. It's Jesus' unwavering commitment to me that holds me fast. That I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. If we think our moments of faithlessness are strong enough to disqualify the power of Christ to save us, and we have a, a very, very weak and low Christ. He is the Christ, though. He is the word of God by which the entire universe was created. I, and I am fairly confident that he is able to overcome your moments of faithlessness to save you and to keep you. But then Jesus just keeps upping the ante in verse 29. 
If you want to know why Jesus can't lose even one sheep whom he's called, he says, my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. The reason that not one sheep can be snatched from Jesus's hand is because not one sheep can be snatched from God the Father's hand. And Jesus's hand is the same hand as God the Father's hand. Yet being distinct persons of the same triune God, what God the Father wills, God the Son wills. A unified will of God, the same vision, the same hand that saves and holds. So whatever you see Jesus doing, he said in chapter 5, is what the Father is doing. So Christian, take rest. Take rest. Keep following him. He is the way of joy. He is the way of abundant life. If you heard him and decided to follow him just recently, perhaps, or you've decided to follow him decades ago, keep deciding to follow him in faith today and tomorrow and then the next day until he comes. And the warnings of the New Testament are clear. If you leave him, if you stop following him, this shows that you were never one of his sheep to begin with. It's not that he lost you or that you can lose your salvation. It's just that what you thought was salvation was never salvation. It was never actually saving faith in the Christ who called you. You were not actually hearing his voice. You heard something that sounded like his voice, but you weren't actually hearing and following the shepherd. He will not lose one. So rest in this. It isn't the strength of your faith or the strength of your obedience that makes you one of his sheep. It's your first being his sheep that causes faith and causes obedience. You want to hear one of the greatest truths that's ever been uttered? Here it is. There is therefore now not There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This ought to come as sweet, sweet comfort and reassurance to his sheep. That we weak sheep can still follow him, not very well, but follow him we still must. And that he beckons us. He will not let us get too far away from us. He corrects. He Woos, he restores because he will hold us fast. This is good, good, good news and comfort to our souls. So rest in this. He will not lose one. And it is only by grace, that which we have no business deserving, that he saves us and keep us, keeps us. Every single night when we are falling asleep, we ought to thank God in overwhelming gratitude that we are still loving him as we are drifting off to sleep. In spite of what we know of our own hearts, oh, thank you, God, for your grace today. Thank you for keeping me today. Help me tomorrow to treasure you more above all else and then more the next day. Show me yourself and give me more, more grace. He will not lose one of his sheep, not one. So he never really answered their question did he? I wanted him to tell them plainly if he was the Christ, but he did say that he's always been answering their question. They just couldn't see or hear the answer, but then he makes them mad again by saying that he and the Father are one. So for a third time in John's gospel, they prove his point that they can't see or hear, and they start grabbing rocks to stone him, which gets us to our second heading when Jesus sidesteps his opposition. 
And like the first two times that they wanted to kill him, Jesus doesn't just hide himself, whatever that means. I'm not really sure what that means. If he made himself like super godlike camo or something or just disappeared, I'm not sure. Uh, or just escape their grasp in just regular old means. He'll do that at the end of this chapter. He's going to sidestep them now in a different way. If they want if they first wanted him to explicitly say that he was the Christ, they wanted to put him on trial again. They've done this many, many times throughout the book. Now Jesus wants them to explicitly say why they want to stone him. He turns the tables on the trial again. So in verse 32, he says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Now just a second. Before you start throwing the rocks, right? I've been out here showing you the powerful works of God. I've been out, you, out here showing the, the power, the love, the compassion of God for all of you to see. So tell me, guys, like, which one of the works, which one of the powerful, compassionate, loving works of God that you saw me perform is the thing that you wanted, that you now want to kill me for? Was it like the turning of the water to the wine? Was, was it, you know, bringing dying children back to life? Is that why you want to kill me? I, I can understand why perhaps you want to kill me for feeding 5,000 people, you know, feeding the hungry. That's not a, not a very cool thing to do. Or, or healing a man who was paralyzed for 38 years or bringing sight to a man who was blind his entire life. Tell me, which one of these things was the thing, is the thing that you want to kill me for? And the Jews answer him in verse 33, it's not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. They're angry that some guy is saying that he has made himself like God. Like he has, a man has pretended to cross the threshold from human to divine. And this is blasphemy. The irony, of course, being that we know that Jesus is the John 1-1 pre-existent, eternal, creative God of the universe. That the glory of the gospel is that God has crossed the threshold to us. That God has made himself man. But they don't see it. They can't see it. So Jesus performs a wonderfully deft biblical maneuver by quoting Psalm 82. At first, man, like when you, if you've read this verse or if you read this chapter earlier in this week and you're like, what? Or if you were trying to pay attention and listen as Nando was reading the text for us this evening and you heard him read this quote and you're like, what? What did he just say? It's, it's very strange and it almost seems to work against the point that Jesus is trying to make. But it's actually quite simple what he's saying and it utterly disarms them. Verse 34, this is what he says. He answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? The reason this feels so confusing is because the Psalm 82 quote is really confusing. Flip over, keep your finger in John 10 and flip over to Psalm 82 about the middle of the Bible. Because I want us to understand what's going on here. When we see the word lowercase gods in this Psalm 82, uh, we have a few options for what gods could mean. God could be referring to actual other deities, but not likely because he says uh, that or God calls these lowercase gods his sons. Or it could be angelic beings, perhaps. There are other 
times where sons of God uh, can be meant to be talking about angels, but this is probably not likely also because we, we see them holding judgment over people and then these sons of God uh, die like men. Or I think the most likely interpretation is that these lowercase gods are human rulers, human leadership whom God has given authoritative representative rulership to, but they are ruling terribly. So let's read these first seven verses in Psalm 82. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. And to them, to these lowercase gods, God says, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. And then about them, God says, these lowercase gods, he says, they have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. So, these lowercase gods, which I think are representative human rulers, to whom Jesus says the word of God came, they can't see. They walk around in darkness and they'll all die. Now, let's not spend any time, any more time in Psalm 82 because Jesus' conclusion about this, whatever the thing may be, is simple. If elsewhere in scripture we read a reference to other humans uh, being lowercase g gods, even sons of God, Jesus is saying, then why are you getting so upset? Why are you getting upset? Why do you want to throw a bunch of rocks at me? I'm just using Bible language, man. Like, I'm out here, God has called other humans little g gods. He's called them sons of God. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying right here. So why are you getting mad and why do you want to kill me? And the end result of all this is it works. I kind of imagine... This scene, kind of like the Sorbetivir scene in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, right? Where they're like, where he's like, how do you know she is a witch? And they're like, but she looks like one, right? Or, and then, but then he's like, ah, but can you not build bridges out of stone? And they're like, oh yeah, oh yeah. They're like, they like, they're completely bewildered. They're befuddled and they don't know how to answer Jesus, right? The crowd knows that they still don't like him. They want him gone, but they don't know how to get what they want. They can't just kill a guy for just opening his mouth. There's got to be some charge and reason behind it, and they know that for the moment they've lost their legal case of blasphemy because Jesus has just performed an incredible biblical maneuver. He doesn't prove his case of who he is. He's just disarming their thinking. He's bought himself a little time because John doesn't say it here, but his hour had not yet come. So they can't stone him, but they still want to arrest him. Now before we move on, I want to go back and observe two things we skipped. One, that this little phrase that Jesus says about God's word being unbreakable. Verse 35, he says, If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken. This is an extremely important little phrase that Jesus says. It's becoming more and more popular to take and accept the teachings of Jesus, but then mostly just dismiss the rest of the Old Testament. So the, the, say, the, th the thinking goes that God was revealing himself differently uh, to a more primitive people way back all of those centuries or millennia ago. So 
I know the Bible says that God told Joshua to like go in and take the land by force, but we know God. We know God as we see him in the New Testament. So Joshua either misheard or miswrote or whatever it was, God did not tell Joshua to do that. Or there are, pro, there are prohibitions against heteronormative understandings of sexuality in the Old Testament, but we know God and he would never make these kinds of prohibitions in the Old Testament. Um, we know that God is different than that. So we're just going to dismiss all this stuff in the Old Testament about judgment and about sin and, you know, the angry Old, Old Testament God stuff. And move on to a more enlightened Jesus of grace and love of the New Testament. The problem is, is that while you're reading, if if you have been reading the Old Testament, if you've been reading through our Bible plan with us, uh, you've undoubtedly seen a God of judgment and justice, yes? But observing the human race that's against him, that hates him, I am more inclined to see his grace and his love as we read. In fact, the most quoted verse in the Old Testament over and over and over again, we've already seen it a couple of times already, and we'll continue to see it if you keep reading with us, is that the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And I am just blown away as we continue to read it. That is the case of the God, the so-called God of the Old Testament. But this kind of thinking also certainly ignores Jesus's teachings that are just as fiery and so-called angry as anything that we read in the Old Testament. But back to John 10, Jesus doesn't have any problem with the Old Testament. Not only does he often quote from the parts about fire and judgment, right? He's not dismissing all that stuff as some unenlightened primitive God. But he here says in scripture that that scripture cannot be broken. If this one little word, lowercase g gods, if this uh, is there and scripture cannot be broken, then if that one little word is there, then it proves his point. Because it's the word of God. Even this one little word, he's using it to, to make his whole case. So if the God of the Old Testament is primitive and unenlightened, then Jesus himself is just completely comfortable with also being primitive and unenlightened, which obviously he's not. But please, please do not try to pit Jesus and the so-called God of the New Testament against the God of the Old Testament. The triune God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. His character doesn't change. He doesn't evolve. He doesn't mature. Scripture cannot be broken. And to paraphrase Augustine, when you believe what you like in the Bible and dismiss what you don't like in the Bible, it's not the Bible you believe, but it's yourself. The second thing I want to point out here, what we kind of skipped, is what Jesus said that God has done. He said in verse 36 that the Father has consecrated and sent him into the world. To consecrate means to declare or to make something be holy or sacred. To set it apart for a special purpose. To dedicate it. And so as special a time as the Feast of Dedication was, God seemingly protecting and renewing the temple, we know and we've seen throughout John's gospel that Jesus is the temple. He is the place of sacrifice and forgiveness of sins. He is the place of restoration, of renewed friendship and fellowship with God through the blood of the Lamb. He is the place where heaven and earth meet. And the Father has dedicated, he has consecrated Jesus, this walking, talking temple, and he has sent him into the earth. 
But they don't want this temple. They, they want the old one. They don't believe his words. They don't believe his works. They don't believe God. They are not his sheep, and they don't hear his voice. They seek to arrest him, but he escapes from their hands. So Jesus answered his opposition in the first heading, and then he sidestepped his opposition secondly. But then finally, and amazingly, yet some believe. Verse 40, he went again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. What we've seen so far in in uh, chapter 10 is Jesus' last public teaching in this gospel account. And so his going away to the place of John the Baptist is kind of like a bookend here. John the Baptist started at the beginning and now John the Baptist kind of here, even though he's dead at this point, is bookending here and capping the end of Jesus' public ministry. Now after this, going into chapter 11, we're transitioning. We're transitioning into the second half of the book and into a new and culminating era of Jesus's work. But what happens out there? What happens when he returns to the place where, G- where John the Baptist was baptizing, where the people are once again out there hearing him now at the place where they first heard of John preaching of his coming, preaching about repentance, preaching about the kingdom of God? They, they believe. We're not sure of the long-termness of their belief. We've seen some people in John believe, but then stop believing. But John, John seems to give no indication that their belief isn't genuine here. They seem to believe. They remember John, and now they hear the voice of the shepherd anew, and they perk up, and they follow him. How do we know if someone is a sheep or not? Well, they hear his voice, and they respond. And perhaps that's you tonight. Perhaps you've never heard the gospel, that there is a God who created you, has become a man to represent you in a holy life that you could not and that you would not live, and then he died on your behalf as, a pen, as taking the penalty for your sin as a substitute. Now that he's risen to new life, that you might have new life in him by faith and by hearing his voice, following him in joy as your shepherd. If that's the case, if you've never heard this or you've never responded to this call, do not harden your hearts tonight. Let this be the night of salvation. Come to him. We'd we'd love to talk to you after this service. We'd love to uh, think about these things, answer questions, pray for you, pray with you. Perhaps as you respond to the shepherd for the first time tonight, we'd love that to be the case. But how do you know if someone is a sheep or not? Whether they hear and respond. And how will they hear his voice if we, his people, do not tell them? How will they hear? Or as Paul says in Romans 10, how will they believe in him if they've never heard? And how will they hear if no one tells them? God has sheep out there that are not yet of his fold. Jesus himself is making reference to them, that from eternity past, he has set them apart, and he will save them. But that the way that he will do this is through our mouths, through our telling them, through our sharing of this incredible gospel. I've heard 
one guy explained this is if I told you that there was like $100,000 locked away in one of those walls of airport quarter lockers, and I gave you one key and said, somewhere on that wall, there's a locker that's going to unlock with $100,000. Just go find it. And if you put it in the very first one and it didn't turn, you wouldn't get all that frustrated. You wouldn't get frustrated after the next 10 or 20 or 50 because now there's just fewer lockers out there that you have to turn. One of them has the $100,000. Our job as Jesus' sheep is to tell others of the goodness of the shepherd. Only God can save, but we tell them. So which of your neighbors is the $100,000 locker? Right? Which is just infinitely and immensely more joy-bringing than $100,000, right? If, you, if you've ever led someone to Christ in this kind of way, where they see in faith clearly Jesus as their shepherd, what joy? Better than any amount of money. Which of your coworkers, your teammates, your kids, teammates, parents, or families, who in your life needs to hear the good news of the gospel that they might know God, follow him, and have abundant life? I already mentioned this morning that they were talking about these kinds of things this morning in their smaller discipleship groups. But if you're meeting in these kind of groups this week, let me, let, let me encourage you to share individual names of people that we can be thinking about together, praying toward together, earnestly praying, and be moving with the gospel toward as a community. How will they believe if they do not hear? And how will they hear if you do not tell them? Might we keep growing in our worship and love for Christ? He has miraculously brought life to those who believe. Miraculously. Every Christian who is alive in him today is a miracle of his grace and his saving power. And what incredible joy that he uses we weak sheep to share this life with others, pointing to a strong shepherd. Let's pray. Jesus, our shepherd, we pray that you would continue to lead us. We pray that you would lead us individually. Each one of us, the members of Christ Church, those who are professing faith in Christ, who are not members of Christ Church, that you would keep leading us. That you would woo us to yourself, draw us back, correct us when needed, even wound us when needed, so that you might bring us back to yourself giving us life. We pray that you would continue to lead us as a church, that you would make us corporately a people who are more and more concerned about the things that you are concerned about, that we are more and more of a people um, that we love the things that you love and hate the things that you hate and prioritize the things that you prioritize for our lives. Jesus, lead us like a shepherd we pray for perhaps those who are with us tonight who have never believed, who have perhaps been familiar with the gospel for many years or decades, perhaps who are hearing it for the first time tonight, that you might bring life, that you might by your spirit, by your saving power, bring salvation, might bring fixed faith on Christ. And we pray for those whom we know, who we are close with, who are perhaps just acquaintances, but we ought to get to be closer with for the sake of the gospel. Father, we pray that you might give us creative ways uh, to move 
towards others with the gospel, that you might give us boldness and opportunities to speak of the saving power of God, to, see, to speak of the saving love of the shepherd, of his laying down of his life and his bringing it back for our sake. Father, we pray that you might make much of yourself through our individual lives, through us as a church, and that many, many might come to belief in the name of the shepherd Jesus in our city and beyond because of our love and our following of the shepherd. We pray these things in his name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.